This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. This is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, the New York Post's charming columnist who is now on WABC every Sunday from 1 to 2. I am going to riff today. No notes, no script, simply my wide open mouth. For some reason, I just feel like babbling. The world is again slowly post-CV dinner, danger, waking up to travel again. So I feel like telling a saga or two about some of my trips. I'm going to start with a sea voyage. Understand, I am very outdoorsy. My idea of a great day out is a two-minute walk inside my apartment. I don't do air. To me, exercise is slicing a sandwich. So a couple of years ago was the maiden voyage of Britain's brand-new Superlux just-commissioned ship, the multi-trillion-dollar ocean liner, the QE2. My paper, the New York Post, asked me to go on it to report the experience. The British captain from downtown Liverpool, or wherever the hell he was from, was super thrilled at meeting me, at the vastly, enormously exciting experience of meeting me. I think he thought my first name was Sylvia. He invited me topside onto the bridge for a personal visit with him, like I cared. Way up there, swaying, seeing waves and sharks, this Commodore says to me, you know, ma'am, this is a very historic journey. I said, yeah, I know, I know. It's the maiden voyage. He said, no, not just that. You should know that we are at this moment in the exact same time period as the sailing and sinking of the Titanic. Okay, now you have to know what a thrill that is to be standing next to the commander of a brand new ship taking its very first tryout trip with nothing around for half the world but ocean water. I was so excited. I wanted him thrown overboard. He is telling me exactly how the Titanic went down. Next, he said to me, and that's not all that we are in the same time period. There's more. Wobbling already and thrilled, I said, yeah, like what? Now, you won't believe this, but believe it. It's 100% true. The uniformed transatlantic voyage with cameras and everything on it, with television, with journalists, with watching this fully laden ship's initial shot out of the dock, this commander says to me on the bridge, Ma'am, not only is this the same exact time period as the sailing of the Titanic, but what you should know is we are charted to sail the identical passage route, latitude and longitude, on the same exact trip. If I now repeated what I then said to him, they would throw me off W-A-B-C. Uh, I'm continuing because I'm in the mood. 
you can't throw me off anyway. So I want to talk about thinking about our universe starting to wake up and just barely beginning to travel. I suddenly remembered back to some of my earlier days. I have schlepped all over the world. Siberia, Galapagos, Tibet, Afghanistan, Fiji. I remember flying across Kathmandu, Nepal in some tiny one-engine kite. My false eyelashes were larger, also cleaner. And then, while we're up in the air, the pilot, the solo pilot, left the controls to walk back and see if I was okay. Yeah, I was okay until I saw the pilot, the pilot walking to me from the cockpit was barefoot. And now I leave you for a moment to go back into, we're going to have a station break, and then you're going to have more of my life's travels. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, so I am speaking with Bill May, who is sort of called an artistic swimmer character. I don't know exactly that me- what that means, but he has won everything. As synchronized swimming, 14 U.S. national titles, 20 international titles, now in the Cirque du Soleil documentary without a net. Now that I'm introduced you, introducing you, I don't know what the hell I just said. What is it you do? What is it you do? Okay. So artistic swimming is a new name for synchronized swimming. So with the evolution of the sport and with being in shows like the Sicilies O and other shows, you know, it's a new name to showcase that it's not all about being synchronized with spectaculars and lifts and guys in the sport. Um, so just for the evolution. And then I'm a character for O. So that character is someone that just basically – kind of runs around, um, you know, tries to steal the spotlight, tries to do the spotlight, be in the spotlight, and do different um, movements that support all the acts that are going on during the show. So okay. I'm called the waiter. Okay, that's all great. I still have no idea what you just said. Tell me, <laughs> how did you get into synchronized swimming? How did that start? So my sister wanted to try this weird sport, and I was a gymnast. So she wanted to try this sport, and I had no idea what it was. So there were some other guys doing it, and I was 10 years old. Um, so I just said, okay, I'll do it just to pass the time. And here I am 33 years later. How, how do you become se- How do you become – seriously, I, I don't know. How do you become a world champion? There must be three people in the whole world who are doing this. How does this happen that you're a world champion? <laughs> well, I can tell you, you have no life. You spend 25 hours a day in a pool, and you love what you do. But doesn't your skin start to wrinkle if you're spending that much time in water? Yeah, I don't have any skin anymore. Now I just have fins. Oh, very funny. Wait for the laugh. I got it. I got it. I got it. But you have been doing this. You have been doing this over 20 years, have you not? I have been doing this over 30 years. Okay, and you got a gold medal and a silver medal, is that so? Uh, yes, I was the first gold medalist for the mixed wet at the inaugural uh, mixed wet competition at the World Championships. Because until 2015, they didn't allow men to compete 
at the World Championships. Tell me, speak, but be specific with me because my brain is not functioning on what this is. Where, <laughs> where did you learn this? How did you practice this? Where? What? So I was an artistic swimmer in upstate New York. I'm from Syracuse. And then when I was 16, I moved to train with the biggest club in the world and one of the best clubs in the world, the Santa Clara Aquamades. So I went to train there. And then after that, I went to Cirque and I continued to do artistic swimming in, in Cirque du Soleil um, at O. And then when they allowed it back into the World Championships, I started to compete again. So I would fly back and forth to California to train with my club and my coach while doing the show. So on my weekends, I would train in California. And during the weekdays, I would be performing in the wonderful show of O. How did you get in Cirque du Soleil? Um, so they started the show with a male artistic swimmer. And then when he left, they were looking for another male artistic swimmer. So kind of, again, by luck, they needed a male artistic swimmer. At that time, there weren't many. And my name got passed and I auditioned. And luckily, I got accepted, and now it's going on 17 years later. But Cirque du Soleil, we sort of get the idea that it's mostly uh, athletic, uh, you know, flying trapeze and all the rest of it. I wasn't aware that it was a lot of swimming. So for O, O is the largest artistic swimming show in the world. Obviously, it's, you know, there's... 4,000 people that see it per night. So it, it was an opportunity for aquatic sports, so diving, artistic swimming, to be combined with gymnastics, acrobats, trapeze artists, circus artists, contortionists. So it was just like the perfect medium for everyone to come together in a water show and showcase all the, the special attributes of Cirque du Soleil mixed with a new genre of aquatic sports. Tell me about Cirque du Soleil. We all love it. We all know about it. We don't know where it's located. We don't know what its requirements are. Tell me about Cirque du Soleil. So Cirque du Soleil has been around since 1984. And it's, a, it's basically a circus of extraordinary people. These people work their entire lives to be the very, very best at what they do. And Sometimes they get into a show, and sometimes if they're very, 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 very lucky, they get into a Cirque du Soleil show. And I've been with Cirque du Soleil now going on 17 years, and I have to say every single night is a dream. It's a blessing. It's like an opportunity because people come from all over the world looking for the world's greatest athletes and performers, and that's what you get at Cirque du Soleil. Of course, that it's the world's greatest. We all know that. We all know their trapeze activities. We all know their, their athleticism. What is required? What are the certain rules or laws to be within Cirque du Soleil? Well, you have to be the very best every single day. A lot of times for athletes, you can be the greatest at your competitions. But this, these people are coming from all around the world to see you perfect every single night. You know, so maybe there may be stumbles, but they are looking for perfection. They're paying a lot of money. They are giving a lot of respect to all of us. So we're required to train daily, to stay as fit as possible, to stay at our very top, you know, to show that excellence. 
for each and every member of the audience every single night. Okay, where do you learn? Where do you practice? Are you under the aegis of Cirque du Soleil when you're learning and practicing? So Cirque du Soleil provides many, many things for us. They provide us trainers. They provide us the equipment. They provide us for any outlet that we need to improve ourselves. If we'd like to learn a new app, sometimes we can learn a new app. We have coaches in various disciplines that will take us even to the next level because we're no longer just high-level athletes. We're high-level athletes that also perform. So we go through very rigorous training to become the greatest now of these two worlds combining of a performer and an uh, athlete. So anything that we need, we can say, we want to improve. What can you do? And they meet us and give it to us. Bill, what are the disciplines? There have to be disciplines that are not known to the public. So, you know, one of the funniest things that ever happened to me is I was warming up for the show, and I walked into one of our training rooms, and there was um, a girl balancing on her head, and there was some contortions that were bent over backwards and just talking like they were walking down the street, and then you have people doing a hula hoop, and then people jump roping, and then people sitting in their splits, and other people doing handstands, and I thought, okay, this, this is Cirque du Soleil. So we have people, we not only just competitive athletes, but then we have people that were born and raised in the circus world, people that are doing trapeze from the time they were six years old all the way up until over 40, over 50. Um, we have, you know, people that have trained solely in dance. All these people coming together to make like this beautiful tableau of the most incredible shows that you could ever even imagine. Where so is imagination? Where is the the dormitory, or where is the place where Cirque du Soleil does its thing? We don't know even where. So, yeah. So the main home of Cirque du Soleil is in Montreal, Canada. Yeah. So when I joined Cirque du Soleil, I went to train there. I trained in acting, um, in movement, and kind of again taking that performer, you know, and driving it into an athlete because. Just because you're an amazing athlete doesn't mean that you're right for Cirque du Soleil. So you're training and you're learning and you're trying to become the best performer as well as holding that excellence of an athlete. So in Montreal, they teach you all this stuff and then you're doing costume fittings and you're doing makeup because we're all doing our own makeup. All that incredible makeup that someone designed, we have to do every single night. And when I first started my makeup, it took me four and a half hours. And now oh. it's down to about a half an hour, but... You know, it takes a lot of practice. It takes 17 years of practice, and I'm still not perfect. What is your day like? What time do you get up there? What time do you get up? How many meals a day do you have? What do they feed you? What's it like? Um, <laughs> so because we're a residence show, it's very different. You know, people get up at all different times. I love to get up and work out in the morning. So sometimes I'll be at the pool at 8 or 9, sometimes at noon. But I have a group that I swim with, and they're the ones that really keep me in check and keep me up to par for my abilities. So I'll train and then I'll go home, I'll have some lunch, you know, I'll kind of chill out. And then when I go into the theater, it just becomes full force. You know, again, I know that I have to be at my best for all of those people because it's a time that they actually get to leave their reality and enter a different world. And they get to enter into our world and we get to share ourselves with them. So are there rules? How, how many hours a day do you work out? How often do you what do you wear? How often do you have lunch or dinner or snacks? I mean, I don't know what the world of the Soleil is. Tell me what the world is like every day. 
Well, I wouldn't go by me because I love to eat. So my eating is different. But, you know, everyone has their own um, their own kind of discipline or their regimen per day because some people don't eat before the show. Other people eat a lot after the show. It depends because you don't want to feel heavy on stage. So a lot of people will eat late at night. And, you know, if we have to go grocery shopping, sometimes we're going grocery shopping at midnight or 1 in the morning. You know, we're taking care of our, I don't have kids, but some people are taking care of their kids, trying to juggle them, get them home from school, get them to school in the morning. So it is like a real life outside of the show. But then once you hit that stage, again, it's like, uh, you know, like a, a tornado. People just come on and explode with talent. Are you weighed daily? (laughs) Thank goodness, no. Okay. So if you're, what is your first requirement? If you are a specialist in swimming, synchronized swimming, you're a champion swimmer. Do they have a fresh water pool for you uh, that you go in every day? No, we actually, we have trainings a couple times a week for the artistic swimmers in the show. But outside of that, I do all of my training at a, a different pool. But our show has the largest contingency of Olympians out of every Cirque du Soleil show around the world. Well, tell so me, we, tell, give me an ex- to keep up their own. Give me an experience. Where do you swim? How do you swim? How, how do Russians watch you swim? Do Ukrainians watch you swim? <laughs> tell me what it's like. We don't, we don't understand what it's like when you have to learn to swim well. So I, everyone has to come in with years and years and years of experience and then keep it up. So I swim with a group that aren't in the show. Um, and people work at gyms with people that aren't in the show. They work out with people that aren't in the show because it is a balance. You know, it is so extreme on stage that you do need to balance off the stage. But people are training wherever. Everyone trains separately. And you also have um, scheduled training with very specific trainers at the facility that train you on very – Again, specific um, exercises that you'll do in Cirque du Soleil. So it's a contortionist. They'll train with a trainer that makes them do handstand push-ups because that's what they do in the show. For swimmers, they'll train us in speed um, because we have to be speed and we have to have fast reflexes. You know, for people that are catching people on this long, giant boat that's in the air, they're throwing people from one side of the boat to the other. So they're having them train holding on to people, you know, above the water. So Every discipline in the show trains differently, but it's something that they expect us to keep up. What are the weights? Do you have to have a certain weight? Uh, no. No, we do whatever's good for us. We do have some um, kind of testing every year that's just like a, a standardized testing that they would oh. like us to do, and they base it on the discipline that's trained. So you'll do some squats. You'll do some agility movements. But again, every act in the show has different requirements, and they do standardize that to make sure that, once again, we're kept at the highest level throughout an entire career. Because even though I've been with the show for 17 years, they still expect me to be just as fit and just as strong, if not stronger, as I did when I walked into the show 17 years ago. Okay, you're now just as strong as you were 17 years ago, and I am a little weaker, and I have to go, and thank you, honey. <laughs> Thanks a lot for talking thank with me. Thank you so much. Thank you, sweetie. Thank you. This has been great. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC.
there is a place called Kick Axes in Brooklyn. It's an indoor axe-throwing bar. I don't know of such a place. Ginger, could you explain to me what the hell am I talking about? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, We have an axe range set up where people can come in and throw axes, and we have a liquor license so we can sell beer, wine, soda, seltzer. We have champagne bottles for sale for those special celebrations, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, you have a license for liquor. Do you have a license to throw an axe? (laughs) Good question. Um, No, Uh, we have a business license, but there is no license to throw an axe. But we do have axe pros that are specially trained in safety and execution, and they work with all of our guests to get them up to speed and make sure they're throwing in a safe manner and having a good time. I understand that, but would they not? I mean, this is all a joke, but I don't quite understand. Just can they go outside and then throw an axe at somebody walking along the street if they've learned how? Good question. No, not at all. So uh, our axes are controlled and are never allowed to leave the range unless they're holstered with our axe pros. So it's not like somebody could come in um, off the street and just walk into an axe range. You have to, you know, sign the waiver and, you know, they're sectioned off and there are ropes. Um, so it's a much more controlled environment. So our insurance people insist. How did you get into this? I started with escape rooms, and I was always on the lookout for experiential entertainment, kind of competitive socializing, if you will, yeah. where people can come in and um, spend time with family and friends, but also compete in a friendly way. So I saw the axe throwing on Instagram somewhere and it was in a warehouse and it had plywood walls and it was BYO. And I thought, Hmm, I could make that so cute. (laughs) I could make it look like a Canadian lodge and have uh, a real bar in there and make it a real true immersive experience. And that's what I did. What did you, how did you outfit a place to make this workable? Um, well, we we made the ranges, which have 10 foot high walls. So, um, you know, there's no transfer of the axe between the ranges. And um, then I also bought lodge-like furniture and, and really made it a cool atmosphere. Bought an electric fireplace that's in the wall. We have a big moose hanging over the bar with our tartan plaid wallpaper, animal rugs. It's just uh, a really cool uh, cabin-like vibe. Do they throw axes while they're drinking alcohol, while they're boozed up or something? (laughs) We do monitor that. So all of our axe pros are trained in tips to recognize anybody that's not throwing safely. And they warn people ahead of time. They say, don't make me be an axe hole and ask you to stop throwing. And people laugh and they understand when, you know, if maybe they are a little bit too tipsy from coming in before, you know, maybe they arrived that way. but otherwise, we monitor how much they're drinking, and they can only have two beers while they're throwing. And if they come in stoned, do you notice that? Boy, that's a that's a tougher call. But we do pay attention to how they're throwing and whether they're acting in a safe manner. And oftentimes, we you know we flag people and just say, "Hey, we think you need to sit this out." And we've never had an issue when we do that. So, you know, knock wood. 
Ginger, what do you what do you charge people for axe throwing? It's thirty dollars per person per hour. Does that go with whiskey? I mean, or, or is that extra? How does it work? <laughs> no, and then you can buy your beverages uh, separately at the bar. And we have a really nice lounge area, so you don't even have to go axe throwing to come and visit us. We have a delicious food menu, and uh, people come and hang out in our lounge and sit on our patio. How old do you have to be to be able to throw an axe at your bar? We do ages eight and up. So we've had kids parties in there. And again, with them, we monitor whether they can throw their axe safely. Um, If they can't, we have some foam axes that they can use. And then we just mark their score where they hit the target. I know this. I mean, I know whatever question I'm about to ask, I know I'm I'm stupid because I don't really know. But but could they not throw an axe sideways or do it to somebody or something? Um, I guess if somebody had evil intentions, that could be the case. Um, but the axes aren't super sharp. Uh, <laughs> I would think that we would notice something like that. And we have security on the weekends when that type of thing might you know, occur. But in 14 years, there has never been an accident with indoor axe throwing. Are the axes sharp? They're sharp enough to go into the wood, but they're not super sharp. Could somebody, a normal person like me, who's not that smart about all of this, go there for dinner and throw an axe? Absolutely, yes. Uh, We have people in wheelchairs can throw axes. It's about the technique and not about strength. So somebody, somebody, somebody could show us me how to do that absolutely yes so everybody gets shown when they show up they get with their axe pro and the axe pro talks about safety and then demonstrates to each person how to throw and then gives them practice shots and then they comment on their technique say you know maybe you should put your foot a little bit further or rock back a little bit more so it's about the technique and momentum that you get not about physical strength Okay, if you throw this X, how far away is the target, or what is the target? The target is made out of pine. Uh, it looks just like a dartboard target. And then, um, sorry, my alarm went off. Um, it looks just like a dartboard target, and you stand about 13 feet away. Okay. Are there any requirements for what is allowed to be worn at kick axe? No, we just ask that you have a full range of motion in your arms and nothing tight up there and closed toe shoes. But we have our lovely Crocs on site for those who don't have closed toed shoes. Kent, why is it closed toed shoes? So you um, don't lose a toe, a foot? Perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> Okay, I'm getting nervous. I would love to come there one day. I I'm a little scared, but I'd I'd like to I I'd like to try. Do people bring their own axes, or do you provide? We provide. You are not allowed to bring your own axes per our insurance company. So we have our own axes, all regulated um, and under control. Okay, so now tell me, since I still don't know, and I'm sort of scared at the concept. If someone drinks too much, you're checking. Will you stop them from throwing their axe? Absolutely. 
Yes. And that's one of the things we do. And most people react very well to it when we ask them. They totally understand. You know, if they're a little bit tipsy and, um, you know, just behaving maybe slightly sloppily with the act, we, we ask them to not do it anymore. And they sit it out and the rest of the people finish their games. And that's another thing. We make it fun and competitive. Um, so it's not like you're just trying to hit the target. We have games where you score and they're like dart games. So you're involved all the time and it's fun and you want to take your turn and, you know, beat your opponent. We'll do it with teams or individuals, however you like. Okay, I'm going to try to come. Can we? Can I call you and come there one day? I'm a little scared, but I'd like to Absolutely. take a look at it. Yes, of course. That would be wonderful. Okay, Ginger, sharpen your axe, not your mouth, and I'm going to come and see what it's like to go to kick axes in Brooklyn. Thanks for talking with me, honey. Sure thing. Bye-bye. Bye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I am now about to speak with Lucas Hunt. He is a high-class auctioneer. I don't know what that means to be a high-class auctioneer, but I know he graduated, summa cum whatever the hell it is, from the Worldwide College of auctioneering, Lucas Hunt. So I'm fascinated because I love to go to auctions. Lucas, how do you get started as an auctioneer? Mm, Well, Cindy, I started off as a poet in the Hamptons and someone saw me read poetry on stage. They thought I would be good hosting a bra auction for Southampton Hospital. A bra, a what kind of an auction? A bra auction for uh, cancer survivors. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. And so that was my accidental introduction to fundraising for uh, nonprofit organizations. But I did go to auctioneer college in Iowa. What means an auctioneer college? What is that, like Yale or Harvard? What kind of, what is an auctioneer (laughs) college? Well, it's more of a state school. Um, It's called Worldwide College of Auctioneering in Mason City, Iowa. And I trained with cattle auctioneers, car auctioneers, antique auctioneers, all kinds. And uh, it's more of the bachelor's degree where you decide what kind of an auctioneer you want to be. Does it take different techniques to be a cattle auctioneer or to be a jewelry auctioneer? I mean, what is the basic need? I'd say in the American style of auctioneering, they want you to be able to chant, you know, uh, one hundred elevator now, two hundred elevator, three hundred elevator, four four. Oh my god! Oh and my that, god! Yeah, yeah. that <laughs> speed chanting. But in the English style, which is what we get a lot in New York with Christie's and Sotheby's and our galas, you know, it's much more subtle. Such as one thousand dollars is bid. Who will bid two? Um, so I think you need to know what you're selling. You need to know, you know, who you're selling to, and then the technique uh, is where the artistry comes in. But the artistry or what somebody who's uneducated, such as myself, would say, an auctioneer's babble, does the babble actually <laughs> does the babble actually say anything? We never understand what it is you guys are saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, the babble is what we call the chant, and it is a combination of numbers and filler words. So if I said it very slowly, 
uh, I would say I'm bid $100, now two, two, $200, now three. Who will bid three? I'm bid $100 bidder, now two, $200 bidder, now three. And when you speed it up uh, and say in between 100 and 200, such as the phrase dollar bidder, uh, that's a filler phrase. So I say $100 bidder, now $200 bidder, now $300 bidder, now four. So there are words in between that sound like babble, but are actually meant to encourage uh, people to to bid in a hurry. But if there's somebody who is not a professional attender at an auction, how do we understand what the hell you guys are saying? (laughs) (laughs) I can't can't figure it out. It's our job then to slow it down and shut up. So if I'm selling (laughs) cars or cattle and, you know, they're professional buyers, they can hear, you know, they know how to listen to it. But if I'm working at a gala in Manhattan at the plaza, raising money for, you know, the American Cancer Society, I'll slow it down and be very clear and precise because uh, it's more about communication and clarity than about speed. Okay. How, how do you prep for an auction? I mean, if you go to an auction and you see jewelry or you see silks or you see whatever, do you not have to go and touch them and smell them so you actually know what the hell you're talking about? Yeah, I would hope so. You want to be an expert in the uh, objects that you're selling. Uh, I'm a benefit auctioneer, and I sell a lot of experiences, trips to Paris, uh, you know, dinner for 10 with amazing wine and sushi, um, things that you could skip the line, you know, front roll Billy Joel concert, that kind of stuff. So I certainly try to live a life of leisure and experience all that. But uh, research is where, you know, you get a lot of inspiration and, and talking to friends and, and say, oh, have you been to, you know, Florence? What's it like there um, to get information to then share with bidders as you're selling? Okay. So if you attend an auction, and of course I have, there's always the phone caller, the one who's oh, yeah. bidding on the telephone. What yeah. does that mean and how does that work? So the phone bidder is what we would call uh, not in the room, you know, not present. They're also known as an absentee bidder sometimes. And they're simply in a different geographical location, but wanting to participate in a live auction, which I think always happens somewhere, you know. And so we have phone bidders, online bidders, uh, proxy bidders, other absentee bidders, and, and, and they can dial in, you know, and have interaction with this in-the-room auction at any point in time. So, uh, yeah, they're they're very welcome participants. Did you ever buy anything that you yourself were auctioning? Ha, yes, it, and, and it's, it's okay to do it. It's ethical um, to do that. I once purchased a trip to the Catskills that I was actually selling, and I bid against the crowd, uh, it was a poetry campout, and I wanted to be under the stars and be with poets and listen to music uh, in the Catskills by the fireplace. And so, okay, yeah, I've spent a thousand. I've spent a thousand years in the Catskills because in the old days, the comedians and I was married to Joey Adams. He was a comedian. Yes. They all went to the Catskills, so I know yeah, the Catskills well. Why would you bid to schlep up there to the Catskills? <laughs> for God's sakes! For what reason? We wanted to get the hell out of there. Why were you rushing to go up? <laughs> I guess I, you know, I'm a poet, so going back to nature is always inspiring. Getting a little dirty, you know. 
Okay, so supposing you wanted something, let us say it was a trip to the Catskills, whatever, and if somebody wanted it and bid higher, then who gets it? Yeah, well, that's the psychology of the auction, and it's a powerful method of, you know, marketing in the moment to determine who will pay the most. And, And when we're doing it at my job, I want to get the highest price possible because it's raising money for a nonprofit organization. And so that's when you start a bidding war. You know, you egg them on and um, tease them a little bit and try to get them to um, get into a direct competition. And, and, you know, who's the best here? Who has the most money? Who wants it the most? Uh, And that's the fun of it all, you know, the thrill of the battle. That's a, that, that part I already understand. That's obvious to us all. But if you personally wanted something, are you bidding it up and having to pay more for what you want because you're doing that? Oh, Cindy, you mean, for instance, when I would actually bid for myself? Yes, 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 yes. Oh, well, I've only done it once, and I, and I, I hope that no one would bid against me, you know, so I wouldn't have to pay more. <laughs> but at the same time, we were raising money for uh, the Poetry Society of New York. And so I, I, I knew my limit and I was um, willing to go to it. Uh, but yeah, I think as the auctioneer, your, your number one job is to always drive the crowd to spend more than they are willing to. This is not a very nice question, but is there not a little bit of thievery in auctions or in auction houses? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, it's a good question. Um, that's a good question. I mean, if you look at auctions throughout history, theory is a kind word for what's happened, you know, in certain circumstances in history. Uh, and and it's, it's a method of marketing property, you know, and experiences. And so as you go back in time and you, you know, you look at wars in, um, in Greece and in Rome, it was very common to auction off the conquered, uh, you know, your, form, your enemy's property. Um, their wives, uh, all of that, you know, that was the, if you read the Iliad by Homer, they talk about, you know, having auctions after, and then on down to America's own ignominious history um, with slave auctions. So certainly there's more than thievery that's occurred there. Um, at present day, what, when you go to an auction, it is very much a marketplace, and there's a, a high standard of, of ethics and representation of what the item is. You know, if you're going to Christie's or Sotheby's, they have to prove the provenance of the piece of art that they're selling. You know, any, any deception uh, could be very punishable by law. Auctioneers carry licenses um, in different states. And um, we just try to, we're always representing a seller and a buyer. And so it's very important for us to put um, their interest both their interests first, well above ours as, uh, and above our profession, because integrity, you know, is the basis, I think, of, of, of business relationships. So. Lucas, did you actually answer my question about thievery? Ask again, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, ask again. I- yeah, I'm asking, is there not a little thievery somewhere involved anywhere in an mm. auction Mm. Thievery. Find Thievery. another word that we will answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking of connotations because, well, let's look at the word marketing. 
you know. Okay, what, I'll take uh, that. I'll take marketing. Go ahead. Go. Yeah. You know, is, is marketing evil? You know, can can we convince people to buy things that they don't need? Uh, yes. You know, society is very good at, at creating uh, needs in human beings that really aren't needs. It becomes a desire. Um, I don't think the auctioneering profession has any more power of persuasion over people's minds than marketing does or advertising does. Okay, you're uh, very and, nice and you're charming, but I never got an answer. So I will go on to other things that you can answer. Okay. What is some okay. of the most? What are some of the most expensive things you've ever auctioned? <laughs> can you answer uh, that? <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, I tripped to the Cayman Islands with a bunch of famous chefs for one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Oh, oh my God. What, 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 okay, a last question that you can also answer. What makes a good auctioneer? Just someone who talks fast? What else, what else do you need to, to have to be a good auctioneer? Mm. I think you have to love people because you're interacting with a lot of people, both the sellers and the buyers. And in my case, I work with nonprofit organizations and I love people. I love how they try to change the world through raising money at, at Gallup, you know, and, and bringing in wealthy people to get donations to them, help the less fortunate. So I would never give get that for an answer. Never in my whole <laughs> life. But, I, you know, you're awfully good at telling whatever you want to tell. You are a very good specialist. Now I know what an auctioneer is. They're full <laughs> of auctioneering, honey. But I have genuinely loved you. Okay. Oh, all right. Thank <laughs> thanks, you, Cindy. It's been thanks a real for pleasure coming on. Thanks you. for coming on. Anytime. All Thank right. you. Bye. Bye-bye. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. You have now heard me being absolutely charming and brilliant for an hour. Now it's time for me to come to the end. But what I would like to tell you is... Life for me is becoming the animal house. Sunday, I was in Mushiki. Do not ask where is Mushiki. It is spelled C-A-Y. It is pronounced Ki. It is in the Bahamas. I was walking along, being friendly with my friend, Judge Judy. We went there together. And she showed me where there was a tortoise. The tortoise's kin weighs 900 pounds. Now, the one who was maybe 830 pounds discovered me. He started plodding toward me, paw by paw. Definitely, he had me in his sights, and I quick disappeared into the bush. So that was my one day. Then I came home on Monday. And then Wednesday, I was with Cardinal Dolan. Cardinal Dolan was visiting all the animals who are going to open Radio City's Christmas show. And there was a camel who suddenly found me fascinating. Don't ask me why, first, a fat tortoise the size of my round coffee table, and then a very tall camel would find me attractive. But as this camel started advancing toward me, the cardinal said to him, easy boy, 
Cindy's older than you are. Every November, his eminence, his rescue dog Pickles and I, bless the music hall's Christmas pageant animals. The cardinal said, you should know the history of this. The manger had no room for Jesus. There was no place to stay. So animals, the greatest gift, were the only ones there at Jesus' birth when nobody else was. And then one camel, the one who was first entranced by me, came towards the cardinal. And he was much taller than the cardinal, and his head hung over the camel, the, 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 the cardinal's beret. And the camel spit on his hat. And the cardinal said to me, now I have to have my clothes cleaned. And as a sheep sidled up to his eminence, his eminence then said to me, now I feel guilty wearing my Irish wool sweater. Talking about the Rockettes who were rehearsing at Lincoln Center's St. Paul Church, the Cardinal said, religion is going down. St. Patrick's used to be jammed every service. It was spectacular. Now it is not always full. It's now less crowded because once it was the center of New York tourism. I do not know where this world is going. As we walked home, the prince of the church, his eminence, Timothy Dolan, said, I need to get home. I need coffee and fruitcake. I never get enough of fruitcake. You should also know that the 12th day of Christmas, New Yorkers in style, that means one week's salary of Eric Adams' brother, two weeks of crystal champagne, three cell phones, four Rolexes wholesale, five housekeepers cleaning, six agents not stealing, seven accountants counting, eight bimbos mounting, nine shrieks, shrinks assessing, ten checks bouncing, eleven divorce lawyers pouncing, and probably when they hear this, one boss at the New York Post firing me. Guys, I love you. I have to leave now. I will see you again next week if WABC allows me. Thank you for listening. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.